Um, hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me. I don't think I said that last time, did I? I actually don't think you did. I think you just jumped right <laughs> just in, which is fine. Hey, everyone. I don't mind. I don't need to be introduced. I'll make myself Darcy! <laughs> On the keyboards! Ding, 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 no. ding, 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 ding. <laughs> Happy New Year, everyone. We are recording this all after the New Year. Um, how was your New Year, Darcy? It was fine. I mean... I, I went to a friend's house and it ended up being a large gathering of people, but that's because she has like 40 people in her family. Oh, um, yeah. So I was one of two non-family people that were there. Um, so it was it was still safe, but like it was huge. Was everyone wearing masks? Um, no, but um, no, we weren't wearing masks. But like we were all, all like I don't I haven't been going anywhere. I haven't been doing anything and they're all the same kind of way. So yeah. Um, we were all safe and everything, but yeah, it was, um, I ended up staying and like having, I just decided I was going to stay the night at my friend's house. Cause I was like, I'm not going to try and drive. Like I'm going to be drinking. I'm not going to drive. I'm definitely not going to drive on new year's where there's going to be people, more people on the streets and you know, this, that, and the other. So, but I ended up staying and talking with like my friend and, um, her brother-in-law, um, till like 4am. And finally I was like, guys, I have to go to bed. Like we weren't even drinking anymore, but I was like, I have to go to bed. And because I'm an early riser, like I was like, I'm going to get up at seven, regardless of what time I go to bed. So like, mm. I'm just cutting into my time of sleeping. Yeah. So, and I did, I got up at like seven, seven thirty. So Ooh. that was, I was exhausted. <laughs> my whole body hurt. And then I did a Peloton workout Yikes. on New Year's day with my friend. Cause we were like, we're going to start the new year off with a workout, but like, um, are you crazy? two and a half hours of sleep and <laughs> drinking and hungover? Who, who was, does that? I'd make, I made a bad decision, man. It was rough, but I did it. I started the year off with a workout. I've worked out every day since, so. Sweet. I'm trying. I'm working on it. I'm working on me this year. That makes one of us. (laughs) (laughs) I have done nothing remotely workout-y. Yeah. But my arms are getting incredibly buff from hauling boxes around. Yeah, right? (laughs) With the new house. We are officially in here. We spent New Year's at the house. I think we moved in a couple weeks ago, and now we're fully kind of... We have two rooms that still have stuff unpacked or that hasn't been unpacked, but everything else is unpacked and looking good and we're just repairing yeah, that's and awesome. making our way through. It's, it's pretty much fun. Yeah. Um, doing all the little repairs and finding all the real damage underneath. That's like the <laughs> worst fear with an old house yeah. is pulling up some kind of floor to fix something little and then finding everything rotten underneath. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we didn't do anything for New Year's either. We just sat and watched, I think, a cooking, a British baking show. And nice. <laughs> we toasted at midnight and then out. Yeah. I don't think anybody around here did anything. I think I was talking to some coworkers because um, I had to work on New Year's Eve. And they were like, oh, yeah, the police are stopping people this year. So people have been told not to go anywhere, not do anything. Yeah. So the, supposedly the bars are all closed here. Everything's closed. There's a couple mm-hmm. that are still open, but... I think that the police are really cracking down and telling people, nope, go home, don't go anywhere, mm-hmm. don't go to parties. So I don't know anybody that went anywhere. I, people dressed up and stayed at home or, oh, you know, went yeah. to a, a very small party, but I don't think anybody, I don't, I didn't know anybody that did anything, went anywhere. Yeah. Like our whole thing was, because there's football, like obviously we're in the South, we're going to watch football and Auburn played on New Year's Day. We don't want to talk about any more than that. Oh. Um, but like, um, <laughs> But Whoa. so our whole thing was like, we're going to come over, we're going to watch football, we're going to do like eat and drink and this, that, and the other, and then we're going to get up, have breakfast and watch football the rest of the day too. So like, it was just like, I didn't even dress up. I think I wore like leggings the whole time and then I did the workout. So yeah. <laughs> um, I have an interesting case that I want to talk about. Um, okay. You had an update though for 
one of yours. Yes. Let me pull up the And I thing. saw this in the news. A couple people sent me the link to this. So I was like, yeah. oh, my gosh. Yeah. So um, last week or this week, December 30th, Samuel Little died. He died on Wednesday. This article is December 30th, and he died on Wednesday before that article. So let's go back and look at when that was. Oh, he died on the 30th. Okay. Okay. Um, let me open the news article back up again. Ba, ba, ba. So, again, we've done a couple episodes on him, I believe. But we'll, we'll go back and post all those notes and everything. But he is officially the deadliest serial killer in history with confirmed 60 deaths. They believe he has up to 93. Um, and he does not remember all of the information about the, the women that he killed. But he did create many drawings from memory he remembered all the details but he did not remember their identification so the fbi is still looking for information on identifying some of these women and we will post a link to that again on the on the um on the social media so that you can go look at that i do encourage you to look at that you never know because he did kill across the entire country um, we covered that so, episode September 8, 2019 so if you want to okay. go back and check out that episode it's israel keys and samuel little together yeah yeah, yeah. Um, where we talked about that. So if you want to go check out that episode, it's from 2019. Yeah. So, so they, like I said, they believe he has 93 victims. Um, they're still working to identify them. So we'll post a link, but um, just go take a look. You never know. You might be able to help identify some of these women. So, yeah. Yikes. Yeah. Bye, Samuel Little. I yeah, mean, and, it's and unfortunate that he passed away before this could come to fruition, but but I, I don't think, know how helpful he was going to be yeah, in identifying the women more exactly, than he already did. Exactly. And there was no, my understanding is there's no evidence of foul play. He was 80, so he's still relatively young. But yeah, I think but he probably had health issues once he, though, right? Yeah, he had some pretty significant health issues. And I think kind of when you're 80 in a prison system, it's you, obviously you don't have the same life expectancy yeah. as when you're out no. in the world. So Interesting. Very, very yeah. interesting. Um, I have another little minor article that I read about that I was just completely like, whoa, this is crazy. I mean, it's not crazy, crazy, but it's kind of frightening. I don't know if you saw this, but um, there's an article that came out a couple weeks ago that's basically titled The Feds. This is the face of a serial predator who worked in U.S. embassies. Mm-hmm. I so did see this. the FBI is on the hunt for potential victims and information about Brian Jeffrey Raymond, a former U.S. embassy employee in Mexico City, already accused of drugging and sexually assaulting nearly two dozen women across a decade in several countries. So the Bureau released this information about him, um, which included public photos of him, and we'll post some of these on the Instagram picture. They're encouraging anyone who may have dated this man or have information about him to provide details through an online questionnaire. So and he is in custody, right? They're just looking for victims. Okay. Raymond was arrested October 9th outside of a gym in La Mesa, California. So San Diego. Whoa. Where he'd been staying with his parents after suddenly quitting his job. Federal prosecutors described him, age 44, as an experienced sexual predator whose alleged attacks stretched back to at least 2011. Mm. He was initially detained in May by Mexico City police who responded to reports of a naked, hysterical woman desperately screaming for help from the balcony of an apartment rented by the U.S. Embassy. After claiming diplomatic immunity, Raymond, who insisted the encounter had been consensual, was released and returned to the U.S. the next day. 
In a subsequent search of his phone, laptop, and iCloud account, agents from the FBI and the Diplomatic Security Service found hundreds of sickening photos and videos they say showed unconscious women being sexually abused. Wow. In some, a man holds open the woman's eyelids, waves her limp arms and legs, or puts fingers in their mouth, eliciting no response, prosecutors said. He can be seen nude and aroused on the tapes and in the pictures. A number of women can be heard snoring in the footage, and at least nine of the alleged attacks occurred in embassy housing. Wow. So he's claiming diplomatic immunity for any of these issues as well, which is just horrifying. The FBI says its investigation has revealed photographs and videos of additional adult women on Raymond's devices and electronic accounts that could raise the number of victims even further. Court filings do not specify his exact position at the Mexico City Embassy, where he'd been posted since 2018, and he has virtually no online presence. Prosecutors Hmm. say he speaks Spanish and Mandarin Chinese and has worked in at least six different countries during his government career, including Mexico and Peru. The Department of State declined to comment or provide further details, referring everyone who wanted to know to the Department of Justice, which declined to comment. So, of course, no comment on that. Mm-hmm. He met his the majority of his alleged victims through online dating apps and is charged with one count of coercion and enticement. So they can't really get him on anything else besides coercion and enticement, which sounded very Yet. interesting. Unless they have people come forward to testify, right? I think, yeah, I think those are the initial charges and why they're able to hold him because diplomatic immunity doesn't mean you just get away with it. Yeah. It means that the country that you are committing the crime in cannot charge right. you. Right. He's due back but in court. in America, he will be charged. Yeah. He's due back in court January 20th. Yeah. And his attorneys didn't respond. But they're asking for these women that may have potentially been involved with this guy to come forward and testify because it looks like there are 20, 30, maybe more women that he's drugged maybe given some roofies or something and then Mm. had his way with them. So he had these encounters with them. And of course they're probably humiliated and terrified and confused and all kinds of other things when they wake up the next morning and don't know what the hell happened. Horrifying. Awful. Horrifying. And he's probably finding them through like Tinder or other dating apps where you can Mm -hmm. easily meet and hook up with people and do stuff like that. And he's in this foreign country. And so he does it and then takes off. Yeah. Scary. Really, really scary. So, So, anyway, um, the main case for the day that I'm going to talk about, and the reason I'm talking about this is because this guy recently passed away. I'm going to talk about Michael Alleg. And you know who that is, right? I do know who that is. The club kid. Yeah. Um, Michael was born April 29th, 1966, in South Bend, Indiana. He was the second of two sons, born to parents John and Elkie. Algae, or excuse me, Al-ig. It's, it's, it's a weird name, and it's hard to pronounce for a lot of people. Like, I went and listened to, like, probably five different podcasts, and they all pronounced it differently. I was going to say, I think it's, like, I've heard everybody to pronounce it different ways. Yeah, yeah. but when I but went... I think it is Al-ig. Yeah, I went on a couple of, like, Dateline and other ones, and they pronounced it yeah. Al, A-L, like the name Al-ig. Like, mm-hmm. Iggy without the E. So, mm-hmm. his mother was born in Germany and moved to the U.S., after marrying his father, who was a computer programmer. So, um, interesting, right? Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the marriage ended in divorce when Michael was just four years old. As a child, he was very smart. He got excellent grades and graduated at the top of his class. Alec was also part of a very small number of openly gay youths during this time. And it was reported that he was bullied on a regular basis because of this. No surprise. 
given the climate. And South back then. Bend, Indiana, is the home of University of Notre Dame. So I'm wondering if there's like a large Catholic population there too. Oh, I, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, because you're Midwest in that time yeah. period. He was probably horribly bullied. Um, he graduated in 1984, and he sought out a more kind of liberal and tolerant existence in New York City. He initially attended Fordham University and studied architecture, and then he switched over to the Fashion Institute of Technology, which is more in keeping with some of the things that he wanted to do. And while at this last school, he met Keith Haring, who introduced his new friend to the phenomena of the New York City nightlife. Mm-hmm. Now, during this time, things were kind of crazy as far as the New York City nightlife is concerned. I'm going to get into that in just a second. But before long, Alec dropped out of school and started working at a local club as a busboy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And while he was busing tables, he started paying attention to everything going on around him, these wild parties, these costumes, this whole scene, and decided that he wanted to go into club promotion. And that would be a good fit for him. And before long, with his creativity, his flair, and his eye for how these things should go, he was holding these amazing parties. Yeah. And living up in the club scene. Yeah. Now, the 80s were a bonkers time for New York nightlife. Groups of flamboyant club goers created these wild sort of personas, complete with outrageous costumes, personalities, hair, makeup, etc. They were basically like this big Drupal drag race at the clubs, right? Yes. Big hair, yeah. lots of makeup. It was all fantastic value. Exactly. Um, yeah. Some of the people from the time period kind of described it as part drag, part clown, and part infantilism. <laughs> so these club hoppers were called the club kids. Mm-hmm. And they had this whole scene and they had personas and they all had a special name and they would just go do these wild parties and go dance from club to club and promote these clubs and different things like that. And paying customers would come in and they would c- create these sort of amazing club experiences. And they were also known for lots of drug use and they would use a lot of ketamine, which they called Special K, ecstasy, oh, heroin, boy. coke, and rohypnol. So Yikes. it sounds like a magical kind of cocktail, right? I have not yeah. tried any of those things. No. <laughs> um, news outlets picked up on these really colorful characters, and they ran lots of stories in Newsweek, People, Time, and talk shows like Donahue and Geraldo and all those guys were talking about these club kids, right? By 1988, Alec was huge in the scene. He was like the quote-unquote, the king of this club scene by that point. He had really developed this persona that was very recognizable. He was very creative. He was kind of like the Pied Piper, they called him, because he was able to pull all these kids and other youth like him into these clubs as paying customers and promote these huge parties, and he was very popular. And he started working for Peter Gatian. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that gentleman's name. He owned a very popular club called The Limelight. And in a very short period, Alec's parties were drawing in hundreds, if not thousands, of club kids and other club goers who just wanted to bask in sort of the New York City nightlife scene. Mm-hmm. And Alec started organizing all kinds of crazy parties at Gatian's other clubs and even at unexpected places like Burger King's, Dunkin' Donuts, abandoned houses, subways, etc. Mm-hmm. So after Andy Warhol died in 1987, the club scene kind of died down a lot, but people sort of attributed Michael Alex's efforts to 
help revitalize this is kind of this impetus to create the club scene and make it even bigger and better in the late 80s. Yeah. But not all the parties were good, though. Alec was also known for his notorious antics, like throwing money onto crowded dance floors and sort of watching people almost like trample each other to death to get to it. Mm -hmm. He would urinate on club goers, pee in their drinks, and knock down people with staged falls. So he would like pretend yeah. to fall and like knock other people and hurt people. So it wasn't and this all was good. like, but like people and like it was a spectator thing. People enjoyed watching him do this to other people. Yeah, like it was. Yeah, I can't imagine like having Mm-mm. somebody pee on you or pee on your pee in your drink. Like gross. Ugh. Um, unfortunately, as with many of the participants in this particular party scene, drug use was rampant, and he was getting more and more out of control each day with this drug use. Um, after numerous drug-related offenses, he entered rehab and then left and then started back up again multiple times. By 1995, his boss, Gatlin, sent Alec again to another stint in rehab and then fired him after his release. So Michael claims during that time that he was diagnosed with sort of this mental disorder at the time they called it histrionic personality disorder have you heard of that yes yeah is that still a term um i don't know that it necessarily is but he says this was something he was diagnosed with back then back in the 90s yeah okay Okay. it is still a term so it is defined by the american psychiatric association as a personality disorder characterized by a pattern of excessive attention seeking behaviors usually beginning in early childhood including inappropriate seduction and an excessive desire for approval um so histrionic basically just means super dramatic yes um and when it's a personality disorder it's persistent attention seeking exhibitionism yep um yeah so essentially he says that his doctor called his one of the most extreme cases that they'd ever seen which you know convenient right i do believe that but i also do think he has narcissistic or had narcissistic yeah. personality disorder. i'm sure there was a whole list laundry list for yeah. this guy but he claimed that he wasn't worried though because this worked well for his professional career as a club promoter right which you know it is what it is i think this yeah. is a the sort of diagnosis that's like white privilege diagnosis almost <laughs> like i'm sorry i hate to say it that way but it's like really how many like people in the there's other things going on in the world <laughs> do you have come up with something like that right but in the meantime though um hashtag first world problems seriously um in the meantime though running in concurrent circles was a man by the name of andre angel melendez he also worked and partied in the new york club scene including the limelight but he was known more for his selling drugs at clubs mm-hmm. um, than he was for necessarily being a club promoter. But he had this whole persona as well, this angel persona with his black leather and angel wings and things like that. But then the limelight got closed by federal agents after a major drug bust and investigation and Melendez was fired. This was presumably in the 90s, in the late 90s. Mm-hmm. Around that time, Melendez reportedly moved into Alex's apartment presumably maybe to save some money or for other reasons maybe Alec needed someone to provide him with the drugs since the limelight was closed and it was convenient for him to have this guy close to him i'm not really sure yeah it could have been a symbiotic relationship for each of them they both needed something from each other yeah so fast forward to march 17th 1996 Alec and melendez get into an argument and there is some speculation as to exactly what they argued about 
Um, Alec later claimed that it was primarily due to drug debts. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm assuming Melendez gave him drugs. He didn't pay. Melendez wanted his money. They fought. Yeah. Simple, right? Evidently, the argument escalated into a shouting match. And this is when Robert D. Freeze Riggs, Robert D., known as Freeze Riggs, um, became involved. Uh, this was Alex's roommate. And evidently, when he saw his roommate being kind of harassed and grabbed by Melendez, he picked up a hammer and hit Melendez in the head. Okay? Um, Mm Because we all know random people have hammers. Just who has a hammer just sitting around in there? I do, but that's because, like, I will, like, hang a picture and then not put the hammer back up. Like, I'll just put it on a shelf. I mean, we probably do, because just we're, we're renovating and stuff. Yeah. But, like, do normal people in posh New York apartments have just hammers sitting around? Like, that's so I random to me. I have no idea. That's so random yeah. to me. But anyway, his roommate, Riggs, supposedly grabbed this hammer and hit Melendez on the head. Melendez then falls to the floor unconscious, and the two men are like, what the hell do we do now? Mm-hmm. So, again... There's some speculation. There's different versions of this story, but they tried evidently to kill Melendez with a variety of other methods, including smothering him with a pillow or a sweatshirt. I heard in other stories, they put cleaning products into his mouth and they duct taped it. So there was some Drano stories with um, syringes and needles and things like that. I don't think anyone is necessarily hundred percent clear on exactly what happened. And Mm -hmm. part of the reason for this sort of a hazy memory of the whole thing is because both men say they were so high during this time period that they can't remember much of it and they mm-hmm. couldn't remember it the next day because they were so high. That's what they're saying. Right. In any case, when the two men wake up from this drug-induced slumber that they were in, they find Melendez dead and they don't know what to do with the body. Both of them say, oh, this was self-defense, but neither one of them called the police. Instead, they put this poor man in the bathtub and fill it up with ice, which sounds horrifying. Mm-hmm. Can you even imagine? Like, where are you in a shower? Like, what? Clearly, this wasn't a thing. I'm not. I'm not sure showering is high on their priority list. No. Like, even before they murdered this guy. No. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, but the decomposition and subsequent smell soon becomes completely overwhelming, and Riggs and Alec debate for a while before getting knives and a box from Macy's. So they go to Macy's. Gather some supplies. Macy's, right? In exchange for some heroin, Alec dismembers the body, cuts off the... So I think him and Riggs kind of debated who was going to be the one to do the cutting and disposing. Mm -hmm. And Alec was like, I'll do it for heroin, right? So Riggs is like, okay, I'll give you heroin if you do it instead of me, right? So Alec pretty much cuts the body up, but... Not really. He just cuts the legs off the torso, is my understanding. Yeah. And puts the legs into bags and duffel, duffel bags, in garbage bags, then duffel bags, and then throws them into the Hudson River. The rest of the body is... Did they decapitate him? I don't know. And okay. the reason for this is because I've heard... When I went and researched, there were like several different stories about yeah. it. But most of them say that they cut the legs off the torso and then toss the torso with everything else, the head, the arms, etc., into a, a different box and then toss that mm-hmm. in the river too. 
Okay. So I think that is the most popular speculation as to what has happened, but they cut the legs mm-hmm. off because they couldn't fit the, this, the whole body into something. With mm-hmm. the legs off, they were able to fit them into bags and boxes, and That's really hard to do. Yeah. Putting, like, like, legs are heavy. Yeah, exactly. And cutting through bone and muscle and tissue is very, very difficult. So mm-hmm. they must have been extremely high throughout this whole thing to be able to do that. Yeah. And the body is decomposed and smelling on top of it. So yeah. I can't even imagine. Again, they tossed the legs and the rest of the body into the Hudson. Evidently, the stress got to Alec because he immediately started confessing to everyone that he and Riggs killed Melendez. See, interesting you use the word confess. Because I've heard this story and they say bragging. Yeah. Um, I think he was probably bragging. Yeah. To be honest with you. And there's a lot of different accounts of this. Mm-hmm. I believe he was probably bragging. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, no one believed him because they knew him and they knew that he was an attention getter and very dramatic. Mm-hmm. And they just thought it was another one of his attempts to get attention. So he just gets more and more vocal, more and more verbal, telling more and more people. And I think he starts to feel like he's not going to get caught because no one believes him anyway. And he's right. just partying and living it up. And he even sent out a party invitation at one point, joking about the murder in the party invitation. So he feels like he's immune to anything right. by that point. And he's probably so high on drugs that he doesn't care anyway. Right. But by April 1996, columnists were reporting Alec's participation in Melendez's death in the Village Voice and the New York Post. Mm-hmm. No names were used, but the details were very specific. So I think a lot of people could infer who was involved in this particular Yeah, thing. it was like a blind item Yes, wasn't really that blind. Um, people were starting to pay attention. And the rumors were starting to go around about a missing club kid and the suspicious circumstances and the mystery about where the body possibly went. Because he was gone Mm -hmm. and no one had found the body yet. So as of late September 1996, police believed that club owner Peter Gatien was possibly involved and they wanted Alec to point the finger. They also wanted Alec to testify against his former boss for the drugs in his club. Mm-hmm. So there were charges kind of going on in this same time period with the owner of the limelight because the authorities believed he was letting people sell drugs in the club. That was part of his thing. Like he was. There was also a money laundering thing with yeah. him, right? There was a whole bunch yeah. of federal charges related to yeah. this owner of the limelight who also owned multiple other clubs in New York at that time. And yeah. so they wanted Alec to testify against his former boss. So they were kind of tiptoeing a, around it a little bit because they mm-hmm. wanted to be able to use him as a, like a, a huge testimony in these other cases, these federal cases. Mm-hmm. But because there was no body, the police didn't have much to go on. And even back then, or even now... Without a body, it's a lot more challenging to try a case. Yeah. Right? And because this is the club scene and these people are doing a lot of drugs and there's like, it's very unstable. They don't know whether he just decided to take off and go, you know, some other city, some other town, go to Mexico, go wherever. They don't know. Um, Shortly after that, though, some kids playing in the water near Oakwood Beach in Miller Field, Staten Island, pulled a box out of the water and discovered the legless torso. Mm. That must have been awful. Um, The coroner reported November 1996 confirmation that the body was indeed Andre Melendez, and all hell broke loose in the New York club scene at that point. Alec immediately takes off and is apprehended by police in New Jersey, and both Alec and Riggs were arrested. So I don't know that they ever found the legs, which is horrifying. 
I don't, yeah, I don't remember. I, I remember him getting arrested finally because the kids found the remains. But yeah, I don't remember if they actually found all of his remains. But I think both men probably blamed the other. Yeah, sure. He killed them. No, he killed them. But Riggs confessed, saying that he heard a loud argument and Alex shouting for help, that Angel was allegedly shaking him, banging him against the wall, and fearful for his friend, he hit him with a hammer. He says that the hammer knocked Melendez unconscious and that um, his friend Alex actually did the killing. So he didn't kill well, him with a hammer blow. Alex actually killed him. Yeah, I mean, to listen to their story, it'd be really hard to determine which one actually did kill yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. Um, he said the two tried to smother their one-time friend, and when he left the room, that Alec finished him off with Drano and duct tape. Jesus Christ. So, and then Alec says that the hammer blow was actually what killed him, and he just covered mm -hmm. it up. So, I mean, the two were basically just pointing a finger at each other. Um, and Alec is, of course, claiming self-defense for this. He said he right. basically freaked out and that they disposed of the body because he didn't know what else to do. Literally anything else. Yeah. And then authorities were still hoping to get him to testify on this, these drug charges. So they're kind of, I think, treating him with kid gloves a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and in the end, Alec and Riggs both got offered a plea deal. Plead guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter and get 10 to 20 years in jail. Both men accepted and were sentenced to 10 to 20 years. And I'm like... I look at this earlier case that we did of this poor girl who was sex trafficked. She gets 51 yeah. years and these yeah. idiots get 10 years, 20 years. Yep. Like it just highlights to me again. And these guys knocked the guy over the head with a hammer, killed him with freaking Drano and then cut his body up and threw it in a river like garbage. And they get 10 years. Mm -hmm. Just unbelievable to me. Um, so here's this Alec, this once wildly popular club kid, who's like bouncing around the jail now, spending time at Rikers Island and in the psych ward, and they, they put him in a couple of different facilities. Um, in 2000, he was caught with heroin and put into solitary confinement. Even so, drug tests showed drugs in his system after nearly three years in solitary confinement. So Jeez. his lifestyle was barely curtailed by going to prison. He was still doing drugs. Right. He was still doing many of the things that he wanted to do, and prison wasn't necessarily holding him back. Right. Alec was eligible for parole in 2006. Again, just blows my mind. This poor woman, 51 years before she's eligible yeah. for parole as a minor, a 16-year-old little girl, sex trafficked. Yeah. And this guy gets parole in 2006. Mm -hmm. I mean, he didn't get parole. He was denied. But um, the main, excuse me, the movie Party Monster came out in 2003, and they say that that was supposedly what swayed the parole board to deny his parole. Really? Yeah. Um, that was starred Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, I've never seen it, but yeah. I've heard about um, it. That's not really my thing. <laughs> no, thanks. I don't want to see a glorified yeah. movie about a murderer. But yeah. um, his second parole request in July 2008 was also denied, this time because of multiple failed drug tests. He then spent a good portion of his time writing up his memoirs, which I'm sure were deeply disturbing, right? Yep. By March 2009, Alec claimed he'd stopped using drugs and had been sober since, which... I don't think so, but yeah. um, I think he just said that to get parole. But sure. in any case, on May 5th, 2014, he was granted parole under the condition that he had to return to New York City. He had to follow an 8 p.m. curfew, 
get drug counseling, anger management classes, and job training. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Just absolutely yeah. unbelievable. This guy who's bouncing around in prison yeah, pops drug tests constantly, and he still gets parole. Mm-hmm. Um, immediately following his release, in stereotypical former club kid fashion, he grants a bunch of interviews and says he wants to have a reality TV show about his life, and he expresses this desire to have an exhibition of his artwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was also reportedly trying to sell his memoir, and he wanted to become a magazine writer. Yeesh. Right? Yeah. Um, and not necessarily for the right reasons. But um, in September 2014, Alex started hosting a YouTube comedy talk show with another former club kid called The PU, which, wow. yeah. Um, in October 2014, he released a pop song called What's In? And in 2015, displayed his paintings in New York. I mean, just ultimate, like, narcissistic, just yeah. disgusting. Ugh. But by 2017, he could not stay out of trouble, and he was arrested in February of that year for trespassing and smoking crystal meth. Evidently, he was in this park, and it closed after dusk, and he was hanging out with this bag of meth and a pipe. Hmm. He pled guilty, got a slap on the wrist for the trespassing charges, and I'm assuming they didn't determine that this violated his parole. I don't understand how this would not have violated his parole. Unless he was off parole by that time. Right. Maybe he was out off of... But just incredible to me that the previous case we talked about, 51 years before parole, and then she got 10 years of parole. Like, I bet you he probably got like 18 months of parole. Like something crazy like that. In any case, on December 25th, 2020, this was last week or the week before, he died. He died of a heroin overdose in his Washington Heights Manhattan home. He was 54. So to me, this is just a really sad case that appears to mask a lot of really serious issues, including mental illness and rampant drug use. Like this was... An addiction. Exactly. Um, This guy was known as the king of club kids by a lot of people. Um, His conviction of his drug dealer's murder should have changed him, right? 17 years in prison didn't do that either, clearly. Yeah. And it just spotlighted the horrific drug problems that are so prevalent in prisons today. Mm-hmm. I don't really know what's more disturbing about this, though. The murder of this guy, his former friend, or the lack of surprise many people felt upon hearing about his overdose death. So it was like this yeah. guy was on a crash course. Like, there was no way yes. he was gonna, it was going to end well. Yes. And so many... And I, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that that speaks to the sadness of addiction and, and I don't want to let him off the hook with what he did, but I, but I do think we need, we do need to recognize that addiction is a very serious disease. Yeah. Um, now granted his lifestyle makes it seem as if he's making choices and this behavior was encouraged. Yeah. So I don't know, but I do think that probably the drug use post prison and the drug use during prison, um, probably stems from addiction. Oh Yeah. But, I mean, so many of the details of this are just so shocking, including them partying for a week after killing this guy and inviting friends over to their apartment while this dead man is in their bathtub decomposing. And 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 there's there really was a lack of remorse on his part after the conviction, both during in prison and when he got out. He wasn't – he would say the things, you know, I'm sorry for what I did. Because he knew he had to. But he continued to live – 
that it was like it was like a 17 year just gap of like him just he took a 17 year break and then went right back yeah um and then they only disposed of the body when the smell became overwhelming right not because they needed to give this guy a proper burial or you know find out it just it seems like they were just kind of in this haze of drugs as they cut the body up and threw it in the river and they didn't give a damn about becoming rehabilitated or becoming drug-free on the numerous mm-hmm. occasions that he had. He just cl- clearly wasn't interested in any of that, even during his time in prison when he could have taken that to mm-hmm. rehabilitate and become a productive member of society. And having some comedy show on YouTube is not a productive member of society. I'm right. sorry. And the fact that it seems like Alec felt little or no remorse is highlighted as well. He yeah. blamed drugs and mental illness for everything he'd done and refused to accept any personal responsibility for his actions, essentially. Mm-hmm. And not everyone agreed with his approach or his attempts to resurrect his nightlife. You know, he basically started trying to do that in 2017. He threw a huge party to celebrate what he thought would have been his comeback at that right. time. Claimed to have received death threats after that, though. Um, others were sickened by the thought of celebrating a murderer, which... Obviously. I mean, just bizarre that he would just try to resurrect this again. Mm -hmm. And I really have mixed feelings about this one. He claims um, that he feels nothing but shame and disgust for being a selfish junkie who killed another human being. But I suppose none of us really knows what was really kind of in his heart, but he clearly was a very troubled person. Mm -hmm. And I think that he was on a crash course for death one way or the other. And it just ended in that heroin. And it's hard drugs and mental illness in this particular case combined in this very lethal way. And it seems like this kind of a battle with addiction is, is overwhelming and impossible for so many people to overcome. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a very sad thing to me that a life was lost. And it's more than just one life. It was multiple lives because of addiction. And that's really right. sad that they could have done other things. And these are marginalized people, to say the least. And then mm-hmm. treatment for these very real problems was even harder because someone died. Right. Yeah. And then the person that that person was a drug dealer doesn't make it any easier to stomach. Cause I think some yeah. people would say, well, well, Melendez wasn't exactly the best person either. He was a drug dealer. But to me, that doesn't, doesn't make it any easier. Right. Um, and these men basically socialized before disposing of the body partying for days after they killed someone. And I get it. They were on drugs, but everything about this case and the life of Michael Alleg is troubling to me. And it's very sad ending to a very sad life. I can't really see a silver lining on this one or anything positive that came out of this guy's life. Can you? Yeah, I think it's one of those things where, unfortunately, I do think there are just people that the way their stories go, all you see at the end of the of the tunnel is kind of tragedy. And I hate that. And I wish that that wasn't true. But I think he is an example of that. Yeah. And But I think there is also a lot of times points in his story where he could have changed that and he just yeah didn't. he had the opportunity he had choices yeah. and this i feel and the reason that i brought this case not just that this gentleman died recently but i thought that it was such a sharp contrast to centoya brown's story mm-hmm. you've got two individuals both from very marginalized communities both dealing with behavioral issues possibly mental issues and you've got two people that do a very very bad thing and react very differently to the very, very bad thing that they've done. And two people that go to prison for what they've done and react very, very differently to their time and experience in prison. And then you've got two people that react very, 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 very differently when they get out of prison. 
Yes. And yeah. what they do for their lives and their communities and how they react to this and, and what they give to society from their experience was very, very different and mm-hmm. interesting. Very interesting yeah, to it's contrast a very those two stark cases. Contrast. Yeah. And yeah, then, of course, sure. you know, you've got the person from privilege and, you know, the white guy in New York's in upper, upper middle class New York lifestyle kind mm-hmm. of a thing and d- drug use in it. And just interesting contrast between these two cases. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that also goes to show you that the outcomes are very different, but the circumstances <laughs> don't care about like these tragic things that happen don't care about your circumstances. You know, you could be from an impoverished family or, you know, you could you could struggle with behavioral issues as a child like Centoria Brown did and maybe not have resources at school or home to, to kind of get that, that um, the help that you need. Or you could, you know, come from South Bend, Indiana and a upper middle class white family and you kind of still... I mean, the circumstances were kind of the same. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they still had tragic things that happened to them. Um, and I think that's universal when we're talking about addiction and, and substance abuse and things like that, Yeah, unfortunately. Well, and then it's my understanding that Centoya also dealt with drug issues, mm-hmm. you know, and marijuana use and, and other things. Um, but she was able to get clean and become sober and, and, and take advantage mm-hmm. of the different things that were offered, it sounds like. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. know that for sure because I, 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 I hear what other podcasts have said, but I didn't necessarily see any of that in her Wikipedia right. biography per se. But I just was very disturbed by the sharp contrast in how the courts reacted to Michael Alleg versus how the courts reacted to Centoya mm-hmm. Brown. And how they well, basically treated her as a prostitute, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And that was the word that was used in a lot of the stuff because that was really before the, the sex trafficking, sex work, and some of the, the rights for sex workers kind of got mm-hmm. modified and changed and perceptions changed um, for that particular career. But again, she's part of a marginalized community. He's part of a marginalized community. Mm-hmm. And the sharp contrast in how these two were treated in both their prison sentencing, their trials, and their parole just highlights a lot of the major issues we have with the criminal justice system and sentencing now. Yes. And I also am curious to know the, the situation involving their defense attorneys. I, you know, it seems likely that Centoya Brown probably had a public defender. Yep. Um, Michael Alec, did he have like some high priced defense attorney or did he have a public, like what were, you know what I mean? Like what were the circumstances with their defense attorneys and, yeah. and, did that have any effect on how they were then treated in the criminal justice system too? Yeah. Yeah. And even if they did have public defense, public defenders, both of them, we're talking New York city versus Mm -hmm. Nashville, Tennessee. I'm sure the public defenders in New York city are a little different than the public defenders in Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, public defenders in general are under overworked and underpaid. Um, and I imagine they're very overworked in New York city. Um, but yeah, but you definitely have a very much more liberal take and more liberal sentencing guidelines in New York city than you have in Nashville, Tennessee. And again, as I mentioned in Centoya's case, Tennessee had some of the toughest sentencing guidelines in the country at that point. I don't, I think they've been modified since, but uh, it just seems like the outlook for someone like Michael Alec was going to be 
easier, more convenient, cushier. And then he's going to these prisons where he's doing drugs and (laughs) having a good old time while he's there. Yeah. So interesting. Uh, If you have any, uh, do you have anything else to add? I do not. Um, We're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. Please rate, review, and subscribe. I cannot emphasize enough how important that is um, for you guys to do that for us. It helps push our show up in the ratings and it helps other people find us who are interested in the sorts of content that we're offering. Mm -hmm. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can certainly feel free to write us an email if you don't like the way we've covered the case. Um, Please try to be constructive with your criticism, though. I know you can't really... uh, say that in most instances, but if you're going to say something that is constructive, just try not to be mean about it. (laughs) We try to stay as positive as we can. We try to stay as unbiased as we can, but it's not always possible (laughs) for some of these cases, um, given how blatant some of the criminals are in some actions. But um, we try to do our best to cover these cases in a way that, that lets different viewpoints come forward and if you have one you feel like we haven't covered we're certainly happy to talk about it on the show and and capture what you're looking for us to capture absolutely um if need be we're at the bfd podcast at gmail.com uh social media darcy yeah we are at the bfd podcast on twitter and instagram so we'll post all the information about samuel little and this guy working for the u.s embassy as well as all the source notes and stuff for the michael allen case there as well and we're really, really excited about this upcoming new year as well in hopes that we can present some sort of different viewpoints on cases that have been covered by other podcasts and really highlight some cases for individuals that have not gotten the kind mm-hmm. of media coverage that they maybe deserve. And granted, this Santoya Brown case is not necessarily a very good example of that because her case went viral and she got a lot of media coverage and exposure. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's normally the case. So... We're going to really try hard this year to bring and highlight more cases for individuals that would not necessarily have gotten the hardcore coverage that they would have gotten in the mainstream media. Right. All right. Please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real. And always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.